Software Engineering Radio Episode 67, Roundtable on Model Driven Development and Product Lines. Welcome everybody to Software Engineering Radio. Um, this is uh, the first time we're actually recording a round table discussion. Um, we are here at Ulrich Eisenegger's confer conference in uh, Leipzig. It's called, uh, what is it called? Um, product line and product line engineering or something. Okay, so it's about uh, model, oh right, there is, I can read this, model driven development and product lines, synergies and experience. Okay, so, and the nice thing about this conference is that a number of experts on those topics are actually here and so I thought we have to get them together and talk a little bit about some of the topics. But before we actually go ahead and uh, start the roundtable discussion, I want to remind you again of our pending survey. Uh, again, we did get responses, but uh, we will keep this open until we have at least 500 responses. Um, we do want to get a significant number of responses, so we have a statistical basis for, for uh, the results so that they are significant statistically. And therefore, please go ahead, if you didn't answer the survey yet, go to our website, se-radio.net, click on the survey link and take the survey. It's only five minutes and you can win a book. Wiley has given us uh, an instance of the POSA 4 book, we have a POSA 5 book, we have SOA books, we have the, my book on model-driven development, which fits the topic today, and, and more. So please go ahead, take the survey, you're doing us a great favor. Okay, but now let's uh, go ahead and introduce the people in our roundtable discussion. You probably know my voice um, since I've been on, on the podcast a number of times, so I'm not going to introduce myself. So let's just uh, start with introduction. My name is Juha Pekka Tolvanen. I come from company Metacase, and my interest area on this topic is basically meta modeling and building domain specific languages to automate software development. My name is Thomas Stahl. I'm working at B&M Informatik, and I'm interested in um, everything that has to do with uh, process and methods. And um, there's one tool thing <laughs> I'm associated with. It's Open Architectureware, um, something like the grandfather. People have heard about OAW a couple of times. We've had two or three episodes talking about it. So <laughs> <laughs> two or three, yeah, yeah, yes. not not too many, but okay. <laughs> My name is Danilo Beuche. I'm uh, with a company called Pure Systems and my main interest is in software product lines and how to get it done in reality. My name is Axel Uhl. I'm with SAP in a group called Product Architecture and in that group my responsibility is taking care of SAP's design time tools and repositories. I'm Rüdiger Schilling with Delta Software Technology. Uh, the company calls itself the Generator Company. Hence, my interest is in any kind of generative programming in automatic of software development processes. Okay, so um, let's get started on some of the questions. Um, um, so let, let's start with taking a look at the official world of model-driven development, which is more or less the stuff that the OMG publishes. Um, OMG's MDA standard, QVT, MOF, these kinds of things. So anybody has any opinions about how relevant some of these standards are? Probably some of them are more relevant, like MOF, and some of them are maybe not so relevant. Anybody who wants to say something about that? 
maybe I can start with the first comment. You thought so that I would comment on that one, right? Yeah. <laughs> the, I have followed the evolution of MOF starting with version 1.4 and now we're in version 2.0, if I'm not mistaken. And um, I've seen a lot of technical work going on at the OMG. Uh, and not all of that, I have to say, uh, was actually helping promote the standard. I think the OMG was kind of trapped by IBM uh, IBM forcing that split into EMOF and CMOF upon the OMG and the OMG just seemed to blindly follow that. Then eventually IBM not truly adopting even uh, EMOF. When you look at the current EMF implementation it is not exactly compliant with what the OMG has with EMOF. Uh, and now eventually the, the MOF standard has become kind of, well, it, it's a big split and it is very complicated to implement nowadays uh, doing a full MOF 2.0 CMOF implementation. Uh, now, EMOF, for example... You're, you're working on this, right? Yes, so you, you do this. we do MOF 1.4. We did take a close look at MOF 2.0 because we thought some of the things in MOF 2.0 might be of interest to us. Um, then again, some of the things that we thought should have been in, especially when you look at UML2 with its superstructure, it would have been so nice if they finally got it uh, to put the key qualifiers uh, into the associations, uh, also useful for MOF. Uh, they did not do it. And, and so we are stuck kind, kind of with MOF 1.4, which was the last implementable uh, but still scalable version. Um, and I think the OMG has not done itself a good service in allowing for that split. Uh, interesting to hear that the, um, the people who make the standards, they don't follow it, but that's nothing new. Basically, it's good to have a standard, but only at the point of time when we know what's working. And as of today, there's clearly not a modeling language yet, for instance, like UML, which we would not be working for model-based development. It's more like model-based catching. The same idea is with the XMI. The XMI has many versions, and XMI doesn't really work between the tools. Earlier, when we had other standards, like in the 80s, we had a PCTE, it didn't work. At 19s, we had CDIF, case data interchange format, it didn't work. So it doesn't surprise that XMI is not working either. It's good to have standards, but let's first make something which works, and then let's standardize. And unfortunately, that's not the way how OMG works. Regarding XMI, I agree it's a mess that the OMG has created. I think it's partly due to the fact that the OMG processes are lousy. They don't require you to do a reference implementation and they don't require compatibility and compliance testing. Now that has been solved in a better way with the, J uh, the JCP, where the people are required to publish test kits and, and stuff like that. So do we have any opinion on QVT, the Queer Review Transformation Standard? Is there anything happening? Well, um, I think that's uh, a good example for uh, um, for a standard or try to, <laughs> to to come out with a standard um, which which has no practical background because um, it is a complete new field and um, there there are so many topics in in that area and I think when this project st started there nobody uh, was able to. Um, to, to really get the point what is good and what is bad and what is appropriate. And um, I think the QVT uh, standard, which we can read now, exactly reflects this 
<laughs> they stayed. There was no experience in model-to-model -model transformations no. when they did, did the standard, uh, right? So they've, that's they've defined three languages, uh, <laughs> and, yes. and they're. It, it's a good example of carrying out research in a standardizations organization, and what you get is the mess that we currently get. It, it sounds like we're all relatively skeptical about these things. <laughs> is anybody there who wants to <laughs> raise the flag for the OMG in there? No, no. Just to be fair. The standards did have a good effect on the development of the whole field. I think without MOF and its standardization, we wouldn't be where we are. And also, I think UML has helped a long yes. way. So I would partly disagree that you cannot do anything reasonable with UML. We, at the company that I used to work for before, uh, at Interactive, we did a whole lot of very useful things with UML. Um, and again, that is, well, partly due to the OMG. Well, of course, we know the three amigos uh, contributed that stuff to the OMG. And then, well, the critics would say then the OMG kind of destroyed it afterwards. But. <laughs> <laughs> so today, during the conference, um, I noticed something which wasn't really new to me, but it became obvious. I think, although this is a very relatively small community we're in here, all this modeling and generative and product line stuff, um, I think the community isn't able to agree on a common terminology. For example, there are those different terms, model-driven engineering, model-driven architecture, model-driven software development, generative programming. Then people talk about models, DSLs, or metadata, um, about meta models, domain models, or schemas. Then there is all this technology stuff, Microsoft tooling, you know, versus Eclipse versus some of the more proprietary solutions which <laughs> sit <laughs> next to me. Um, so, so do you think that, that it's a problem for the development of this whole approach that the community, although it's small and it's, and it's probably in its infancy, is already splitting and can't even agree on common terminology? I think some of the terms that you mentioned do have a pretty well-defined meaning. It is just that some people tend to confuse them constantly. Right. But the question is what the cause, root cause of the problem is. Is it the unknowingness of the people who just don't care about the terminology and just use the terms any way they like? Uh, so, for example, when you mention DSL and metamodel, of course, there's a clear distinction between the two concepts. Like, a metamodel just defines the abstract parts of a syntax, whereas a DSL is much more than that. So maybe it is more about the ways that the terms are being used by, well, let's say, some of the not-so-literate people. So my impression, to some degree, is not only that people are misunderstanding it, that, that everybody is misunderstanding it in a different way. <laughs> and if, if, so that makes things a little bit more difficult. Even this morning we heard when we're talking about product families and product lines and system families, sometimes there are unnecessary distinctions just to say, well, this is a very specific thing. It needs a very specific name. Uh, and, and sometimes the, uh, the, uh, the wordings are overlapping. And this makes, makes, it, makes it more difficult to deal with. And the problem is, is pro uh, the reason for it is probably that it is yet not mainstream by any meaning. And that means uh, there are a lot of... Uh, people working separately, everybody has his own ideas, and sometimes we meet in conferences like this, but we didn't have a chance to build a community, and a community where we can talk about these things and we can build up a common wording. Although cynically one could say that it would be a useful thing for the OMG as a standards body to make sure that these terms are really properly defined, but it seems like they're doing other stuff. Uh, Danilo?
It's, uh, I think it's uh, partly because we are relatively alone uh, and go out into the world, discuss it with our customers in some sense and uh, it, it discuss it in their terms. And then uh, we, we do things which are not, uh, not okay and don't use the exact term just to be able to talk to the customers. And then we meet and then we have the problem that we use the wrong terms, even if we know, if we would think about it, that we don't uh, do the right thing. In the model-driven world, I think we agree that um, round-trip engineering is typically not very useful because the models are more abstract than the code that's generated, so there is no easy mapping back from the code to the models, right? Right, okay. However, there is another initiative at the OMG, which, and I think this is really funny, uh, actually uses an acronym that has the MDA letters reversed, which is ADM, which is the architecture-driven modernization thing, which is basically... That's what I understand. Um, a kind of model-driven reverse engineering. So, can somebody um, explain what this is all about and, and how it relates to MDA, or, or is that you know I've always wondered about the the, the back arrow from code in, in in to the model in the MDA standard. Is 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 it what's going on there, or what what about this ADM stuff? Yes, uh, ADM is uh, the wording is funny. It's just uh, MDA reversely. But uh, to understand it, it is, it's not the exact idea that is we, we will take software, uh, drop it into some kind of machine and out, uh, out comes some UML code. Uh, that's not exactly the idea. The idea is, uh, though the wording uh, gives the impression, uh, the idea is to use uh, some kinds of mechanisms to understand the applications just to understand existing, let's say, legacy applications, to understand what is in there, in the application, what are the um, functionalities, what are the assets, and so on, on in, in several areas, in several directions. It's, uh, it is uh, at least not up to date. Uh, there are no, uh, nobody's trying to automatically derive models uh, in like, like a UML model. There are standard models to express what is in the, in the applications, but not the, just an automatic transformation. Uh, I cannot imagine it uh, today, an automatic transformation from, let's say, an existing COBOL application, uh, 120,000 lines of code, I've seen things like that, uh, into just one uh, UML model. It's, it's without any use. But it is useful to understand the application. It's useful to express what you understood in agreed models. That's that's the idea. So, so the idea is to standardize certain meta models that 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 allow people to express software structures. Yes, and to that allow to well, the, again, the idea is that allows tool vendors to exchange the what they find out. There are some who are specialists and let's say discover things, and then next one doing analysis tools and so on. Uh, I know this. Uh, I know this. This comes back to the question: How useful is XMI to exchange these informations? But we had the answer for that before. <laughs> Sounds like an OMG because the issues of program understanding or architectural recovery—they are tough academical research questions today. They are not at all at the state of being standardized. But again, doesn't surprise me. Well, then, well, I have, I have another view on it because there are already uh, lots of tools out there in the market, and it's a necessary task. 
So we, we cannot wait until uh, in, in the research all the questions are answered for that, because when they are answered, nobody is any more interested in, in this, this answer. So it, it might be... <laughs> It might be useful. It might be useful to let's see uh, at, at least at, at the smallest common denominator to find out what are the informations we can share and we can exchange uh, uh, with others. And uh, in practice, we're doing it already. We're doing it with another company. Um, they, they have analysis tools and transformation tools for other languages, and we have some uh, analysis and discovery tools for existing applications. And it's, it, it looks useful. Uh, as long, you know, I'm afraid, I'm afraid is the usual uh, pro uh, process is that uh, more and more requirements are added, more and more uh, functionality is added to the models until they are not useful anymore. That, that's, a, that, that's a risk, but uh, up to date it looks like really some, uh, something useful. Uh, it is completely based on MOF and only MOF, not UML, it's not producing UML. So these meta models are comparable to what the CWM meta model does for data description. Exactly, it's a similar approach, and it's overlapping. The data description part of CWM is used within ADM. And we also agree as a community here that this is something different than what we talk about in model driven development and MDA. It's it's not just simply the way back for round trip engineering. It's really kind of a digging in in the dirt in the architectural in, in the systems to find out what they're all about, right? What is exactly the difference between MDA and ADM? Uh, if you have in, in both areas, you have meta models, domain specific, describing architectural things or more more uh, business related things, and uh, there's not um, the the intention to to have round trip engineering. So, what's exactly the difference? It's more intentional than than formal, right? One one difference is where you start, right? You start with the model, or you start with the code. That's the difference. You start with the code and you, you cannot expect the code to be, let, for instance, to be well-designed and well-architected. Uh, you don't have, for instance, you don't have cl uh, things like classes in existing uh, COBOL applications and, and so on. So you have, you're dealing with different art artifacts, you're dealing with different uh, model elements. Uh, you can try to translate them afterwards, transform them into UML model elements, but it's a uh, to, to some degree, it's a different world, at least in the beginning. Yes, and, but uh, if you if you have, um, say, a DSL which describes uh, those things, then you can perfectly use it to describe um, not only uh, legacy applications, but um, to design new applications as well. Or uh, don't you expect that? Uh, I have no contradiction about that. that. That's a different approach. It's a different approach. Here is the approach to try to standardize the model to be able to exchange the, the data uh, about the applications. That's it. Uh, that uh, a different approach starting with the uh, DSLs can help and will help, I know. And to some degree, we are doing it exactly that way. We're not using, uh, we're not waiting until ADM is completely specified and defined. We, to, to, to say the truth, we're using the things that we think that are usable. Similar as we heard before with MOF. We, for instance, we're using uh, still the old MOF 1.4 version. We're uh, uh, using this one and not, not uh, release two. And uh, on the ADM side, uh, well, we have, to, like, I think in the end, like every other tool builder, we're picking those elements that look to be useful. <laughs> and 
uh, it helps us, just keeps us to invent, from inventing the, those things ourselves. So this conference is called <laughs> Product Lands and Model Driven Development Synergies. So what are these synergies? Um, um, is model-driven development basically the same thing as product lines? Does it make sense to use model-driven development for one-up applications if you don't do product, line, product lines? Or the other way around, is it today useful to do product line engineering without doing model-driven development and formal modeling? Um, where do we think are the synergies there? Probably to most of your questions, the answer is yes. Uh, um, it is. It is a, uh, my opinion that you and it has been proven you can do obviously software product lines without. Yeah, that's uh, why I said today model-driven development, and you will probably do it in uh, certain domains uh, still in ten years. Um, it, there are. We can probably agree on this, or maybe we can agree on this, that there will be uh, parts of the of the whole uh, computer scientific domain where their uh, where models are not that useful, and um, there will probably uh, an overlap between software product line domain and those uh, domain. The, the reason why I'm asking is because whenever we talk about product lines, you're one of the first people to mention that it's important to formally, and I was pointing at Danilo, by the way, when I said you, you can't see that on the podcast. So, um, <laughs> um, so you're, you're one of the first to point out that it's important to formally describe the variabilities between the different products in the product line and these descriptions are models so you could easily argue that this is a form of model driven development where the models aren't structural like uml or 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 some other graphs basically but rather the model is a configuration of a feature model so in that sense maybe yeah well actually what what we try to uh, teach uh, our customers is to do as much formalization as possible in, in the given context. And one of the important things in the software product line area is to model the variability and uh, we try to make them use formalisms for this. Yeah. Uh, but there are other parts, usually the implementation part is in, in, in many cases not, uh, not formalizable in a model since we have legacy components and it doesn't really make sense in, for very small applications to build a generator often. And software product lines are, uh, on the other hand, often where, uh, a lot of many uh, similar small applications. Uh, well, the synergy between MDST and, and product line engineering, I think um, there's a, um, an overlap in process, or could be uh, a useful overlap in process. This domain engineering and application engineering, for right. example, stuff. Exactly. And, um, okay, One can live with, uh, without the other. I think we, we all agree about that. Um, I think uh, what, what Marcos said is, uh, is uh, right that um, MDSD is an abstract concept which covers the concept of feature modeling and variance in, uh, uh, in some way. There might be one subtle difference, though. When, when I look at what SAP does with... It's 30,000 roughly configuration switches we have in our business suite. Imagine how many combinations that results in. It's, it's vast. <clears throat> and when I look at the processes and the ways how that is developed, uh, we heard it in one of the talks today that um, those are mainly configuration tables. 
So eventually what happens is you have a very lean UI that just helps you add configuration time, which is not design time and thus fundamentally different from the processes we use in model-driven development. So a configurator or a consultant working during the implementation phase at a customer will set those configuration switches which map directly into a configuration table. No code will be changed, there will be no generation step, there will be nothing except that an if will take another route in the code. So that, I think, is a, is a difference, maybe not so subtle when I think about it, maybe even more fundamental, between the model-driven development processes and, and tooling that we observe and the ways that configurations of product lines sometimes work. Uh, one clear way where models make sense in a product lines is that if you want to raise the abstraction higher, because today the variability is very difficult to maintain the code, and models are obvious way to do that. And it's very known principle already from 80s to build domain-specific languages. Then they were more textual ones, which then describe only what is the difference among family members. And then tied with the code generators, then you could also produce new kind of functionality. Not just configurations, but you can also build totally new kind of applications that didn't exist anymore or before that. So one of the reasons I was asking is because if you talk to PLE people, product line people, then they typically talk about configuration models. It's basically this feature modeling stuff. And if you talk to model-driven development folks, they talk about things like UML or other graphical or textual languages. So the, the PLE stuff is more the configuration kind of thing, whereas the model-driven people more have this creative construction approach to use the two terms that Krzysztof Czarnecki at some point introduced, where you creatively build something from a set of primitives defined in a meta model. So I, I kind of don't see necessarily how, I mean, the two communities just have a different focus, but you can still do model-driven development with feature models or product line engineering with structural models. So that's why I was asking. It, it seems these things are a little bit, they have different backgrounds or different... Well, I think that uh, the, in my opinion, model-driven development is a is one of the very good ways to implement software product lines much more efficient than we do today. And um, the, on the other hand, uh, the configuration models which we have talked about are an integral part of the software product line development, not only uh, on the technical issue, on the technical side, but also for the management of the whole life cycle of application development. And software product line development is much more than configuration. It's, it's about how you get the information, how you use the information throughout the development process. And that's the difference. Uh, Model-driven development is somehow a relatively technical thing. And most of the problems in software product line development are uh, basically on the management issues. There are management issues. And uh, so there is an big overlap in the tec technical things and then we have other things in software product line which are the, uh, actually more of, the, more of a problem than the technical uh, configuration. One clear distinction that I see among people who do configuration and those who, who use uh, domain-specific languages to make uh, variants is that are the applications already available during the production? In people who do configurations, they expect that all the variants are already available, implementation code is available, and then the code is combined with the configurations. That is fine and works in some areas. Then there are other areas where you can't expect that the code is already available and you can build a domain-specific language on top of the platform and then you can also make new functionality, not just the configuration, but you can actually make new code from the models. 
my feeling is just talking about model driven is too indifferent you know model driven you, you have to understand first in which direction the abstraction goes in, in your model uh, so there are model driven approaches based on UML which is completely different approach than a model driven uh, uh, development based on, on feature models, so they're orthogonal, th this concept, or something like domain-specific languages. And, and th that's, that's, the pr that's one of the problems. We had in the, right in the beginning, what does the word mean? And uh, probably we need new words, so we have to be clear about that. Yeah, let's invent new terminology. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we have to, we have to, to, to be uh, serious about that. I had a presentation uh, uh, some months ago in Italy, and uh, we were talking about a model-driven approach. Uh, and after talking one hour uh, and explaining what, uh, what can be done and what we're doing, there was a question, well, and where are the UML di diagrams? Yeah. <laughs> That's probably because of my English or their understanding of English. I don't know. <laughs> uh, you can you can have the same thing if you go into the automotive domain, where model model based development they call it is uh, identical to saying we use a specific product called MATLAB Simulink, and and <laughs> right. that, that took me a while to understand. So, do we have any opinions as a group on what's more useful, textual or graphical DSLs, or are there any sweet spots for either of them? I think you have, Pekka, I think you, you have an opinion there. They don't need to only be, in my mind, just textual or graphical. They can be also table-based or matrices. And the representational form and the notation, so to speak, should be selected uh, on what feels most natural in that application area. If the developers feel that text is fine, then they should build a domain-specific language based on text. If they see that they need to see uh, inter, uh, connections between elements and they want to use matrices, then the domain-specific language should be based on matrix or graphical one like many of them are. It's, just, it's a choice of the person who defines the language. Right. I, I would also agree that a lot of personal preferences of the modelers or developers or whatever you call them is involved. I think in addition to that, we can see that text-based is still a lot better understood than graphical modeling. When you think about those tougher problems like how to merge those models or what happens in case of uh, changes in the abstract pieces of the model, how do you have to adapt the graphical representation in those guys? <laughs> He's longing for the mic. Uh, so, so I think we understand that better today for text-based stuff. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that we, we're never going to get it for the graphical stuff. In, in text-based development, we have horrible problems with versioning, having the same files and, and copy the same text in multiple places. And it's very horrible, but people get used to that. That's the way of living. If I change my header file, goodbye, my, I need to remember that to change also my C file. So yeah, people get used to that, they are inconsistent and then there's no problem with the text over. I've never seen that in Java, but I think copy and paste, of course, could also happen with graphical models. 
I think there is, there, for me, there is a, again, this basic misunderstanding for the model. A model is not just some boxes drawn and lines between it. That's not a model. Although everybody thinks models have to be boxes and lines and things like that. Models can be text as well. A model is what is in a metadata. And boxes and lines and text are representations of that, are, are renderings. Obviously, yeah. There are renderings. And so um, uh, the discussion is a little bit misleading whether it should be boxes or, or text. I, I agree, um, but um, concrete syntax uh, matters as well for um, ergonomical, uh, from an ergonomical point of view, because uh, it's it's not the same uh, for people if they uh, if they write um, text or if they um, they have a graphical representation. And a good argument to that point that concrete syntax does matter is the lack of success of the UML action semantics, which might have been caused by the lack of a concrete syntax for it. So maybe let's briefly visit another topic, which is uh, today's uh, tools for modeling. Um, some of them, I mean, there are several issues. One is, of course, the usability of some of the tools to build editors. Some of them are not that great. Others are maybe better. Uh, I'm again looking at somebody. Um, and then there is maybe the scalability of, of some of the underlying infrastructure, which is an interesting topic. For example, if you look at EMF and you have all those XML or XMI files which reference each other by various more or less um, you know, scalable and... Uh, robust means, then the question is, how, do you, how can you actually build an enterprise-wide modeling infrastructure? So um, I think this is an interesting topic. So who wants to say something first? We at SAP are trying to do that. It might well be that we are proven wrong, and then I have to say we didn't know how to do it. But the way we think how it can be done is uh, starting out with the repository aspects first, so not handle all the problems at once. I think a, a reasonable, scalable, multi-user capable repository is key to success in that area. I presented today a couple of the features that it has to have. Um, then on top of that, you have to have all the various services, including tool building support and reasonable frameworks. And I think standards do not matter so much. It has to be easy, and, and I completely agree with other tool builders on the table uh, on, that, on that issue. Today we have a presentation from uh, Porsche on building domain-specific languages and generating HMI. And even though they generate the HMI and can execute it, the people still would like to use a PowerPoint because that's what they have used to. So clearly, if you want to use a structure or formalism, we are forcing people to, to use some other tools than the PowerPoint. But I guess the task for tool developers is then trying to make the modeling functionality looking as easy as a PowerPoint could be. Yeah. But that's a horrible idea. <laughs> there was this, this other joke going around when people talked about executable UML, which is uh, stripped down to have very precise semantics that the next evolution would be executive UML, <laughs> which is basically a PowerPoint profile which has absolutely no semantics. <laughs> Actually, I'm curious to see what, what will come along when we have the, um, what's it called, smart documents with Office 12. What's that? Um, what it gives you, as far as I understood it, a, a colleague of mine presented the ideas to me. Um, as far as I understood it, you can 
um, have specific XML bridges to underlying XML documents, and you can link those things uh, to the uh, elements in your Office documents. So for example, you can set up a PowerPoint frame and then have specific elements in the presentation that relate to data coming from the outside. And I was thinking that could be a way of using that yeah. as, a, as a tool front end, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, um, I have two, two more questions, and I think then we have to go because there is some social event or party this evening which we probably shouldn't miss. Um, so one is um, MDD and offshoring. Um, I've always argued, and also in some of the previous uh, podcast episodes, that if you do MDD right, then there is no economic benefit in offshoring because you can get the same improvement in or the same reduce uh, reducement in, in, in the amount of money you have to spend. Basically, it's going to get cheaper. So um, any opinion there, any experience there maybe where we can say that offshoring can be, you know, we don't have to offshore and rather do modern development? Any opinion? I can also cut out the question if nobody's answering. <laughs> I've seen that some people use model-driven development as an argument for offshoring. They say we can ship the models then to somewhere else uh, and then people there can use tools to... Uh, they they press the button. Then they press huh? the button, basically. Well, that means that they have to do less work and it can be better controlled. I don't buy into that vision in the first place. I think it is, it is off by far. Uh, I think there is a lot of other issues in, in offshoring. We at SAP are, I would call it experimenting with it. Um, you know that we have labs all over the world, um, Israel, um, in Bangalore, India, we have labs in China. Um, there, I, I wouldn't think that whether or not your model changes anything in the fundamental aspects of the game. Executives still perceive the, the cost difference. The, well, as I said, they perceive it. It's a seeming cost difference that doesn't uh, really exist if you ask me. There is all kinds of risks involved in offshoring um, and, and difficulties and modeling doesn't, doesn't influence that significantly, I think. I don't know whether there's a real experience with, with uh, offshoring or nearshoring and, and model-driven software development, but what uh, we observe is that there um, is a kind of movement into that direction, a movement uh, for offshoring and a movement for using model-driven things to to build a kind of um, frame for, for uh, uh, or um, safety safety net for offshoring. Um, we have no experience if if uh, this is uh, um, practical or not, but. Um, I think we all have uh, to deal with the with the market and, and with the market aspects and offshoring is uh, uh, a theme that is uh, present on the market and maybe model driven development can be integrated in an offshore scenario so what would be the way I mean our analysts draw the models and and the offshore folks implement the generator or do we implement the generator because we want to standardize our architecture and then they draw the model based on word documents or or are they literally just going to press the button which is obviously stupid because it doesn't matter where I press the button so I mean what would be the way I, I think <laughs> people are fighting over the microphone so <laughs> I want one <laughs> okay yeah we have two so <laughs> okay 
Well, one one major argument for offshoring is the the cost of the people. Uh, In other parts of the industry, uh, there is a good answer to that. Uh, If we don't try to move the the factories to to another country, we start to automate our processes. So I think that's a new idea for for software developers probably, but something we should consider is to to add more automation into development, and uh, MDD uh, can be part of this idea, about part of the solution for that. Uh, I, I cannot imagine. It's, it's a completely non, complete nonsense to use model-driven development to do it offshore. Uh, so what, what is the use of that? Just to quickly reply to that, it, I think it depends on the way you do your model-driven setup. If you can, if, if you can completely generate the applications out of the models, I would completely agree. There is no sense in somehow trying to combine that with offshoring. It's exactly like automating production-intensive processes in other parts of the industry or other industries. Um, however, what I have seen in several cases is that there is need to refine the products of the generation steps or the model transformation steps. Yeah. And in those cases, the question remains, who does those things? And I think there is reason in trying to offshore those parts of the process, um, having the specifications of the models in the high-cost locations, and then trying to offshore the refinement to lower-cost locations. Okay, last question before we wrap up today. Um, so... We're here in this model-driven and product lines conference. You know, there are about 100 participants or something. So some people say that's because we're in some remote part of Germany because that so few people are here, but that's, of course, cynical. Um, the question is, how, how widely spread, how well adopted is all this model-driven and product line stuff really? I mean, is it mainstream already? How fast is it becoming mainstream? Uh, we carried uh, last month a market survey uh, in uh, German-speaking Europe, and uh, 70% of the interviewed people who made uh, product line, who made products, new model-based development approaches like domain-specific modeling or uh, Visual Studio Team System modeling tools, DSL tools, or Eclipse modeling framework. So 70% people know. Not so many are using it. So right. there's something to do. But the knowledge is there, and uh, increasing number are, of companies are starting to move them and considering to use them. So clearly there are steps to be, ta- uh, steps to, to, to be taken still. So are we happy? Is it being adopted fast enough? I mean, after the initial MDA hype, things have, I think, I, my feeling is that things have slowed down considerably, that it's not, you know, the adoption of model-driven stuff is not as fast as people could have thought. Isn't it clear? UML is now 10 years old, and it hasn't delivered the promises it gave. So, of, of course, people are skeptical. What about the more product-line-oriented things, Danilo? I have a PowerPoint slide uh, which I adjust every year, which has uh, two errors. One is the timeline, and uh, one is the the use of product lines. And I, I well, I adjusted one by by centimeter each each year to. So you extend the timeline, but you no, don't no, change no, anything just, about. I just put it. I just put it a little bit closer to where I, where I say everybody knows at least about it and uh, there is st- as an emerging use of these technologies in where it should should be used in the first place. Uh, five years ago nobody w- 
really right. knew yeah. what yeah. it was talking about. And, and now uh, I, we are able to talk about these problems and uh, we finally get some, some uh, companies to see that there are already solutions to some of the problems they have. So uh, I guess there has been some progress and uh, I feel that the last five years were quite important in this area. But Although it's funny because, for example, the OMG still didn't include feature modeling into the, OM the UML, which would be terribly useful. And they didn't do it. So at least the main... Okay, we're again at this OMG thing, but... Um, you started. No, I, just, I was just saying that they didn't include it, okay? There was no, there was no opinion there. Well, the, the thing is that this kind of modeling is something uh, which also other standardization bodies uh, failed to do. Uh, if you look at AutoSAR standardization among automotive software development uh, companies, they had a working group for exactly this thing, and after two years they simply gave up and said, we, we can't do it. I think it, the model-driven business has caught on quite a bit. A lot of people in the environment that I see are using it in one way or another. SAP, as I showed today, is using it big time. The true problem is the heterogeneity um, yeah. due to the absence of um, working standards, probably. So you see that proliferation of tools <laughs> and repositories <laughs> and, you have um, and technologies and frameworks and workbench environments and whatnot. Uh, and the problem is the things don't really yet fit together in a way that it becomes industri industrially viable in, in a big scope, let's say. And I think we have to get, get that changed. You know, one, one, one final comment or observation there. Recently, uh, um, a, a world-famous, as they put it, um, modeling tool vendor released a new modeling tool. And um, what they can do basically is they can do class diagrams, UML class diagrams, and their primary sales argument is they can do huh, round-trip engineering. So, you know, again, this class picture to class code, which is, as we all agree, probably useless, more or less, or completely. So either the company didn't get it, or, which I think is more, more likely, they advertise with this round-trip engineering because people want to have it, so people didn't get it. So... so didn't weren't we able to yeah at the second one so so weren't we able to 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 you know to transport the message are people still on this round trip class diagram to class file level the t the together problem that you mentioned that that addressed two <laughs> that addressed two pain points at once and they did it in an appropriate way killing those two pains the one pain was that executives kept asking for diagrams trying to explain what the architecture or the design looks like uh, and developers hated to use UML tools. So um, they together killed both pain points at once. Developers could continue writing code and then on a press of a button produce the diagrams and the executives would just shut up. This is kind of a uh, uh, model alibi, alibi modeling. It's just, uh, just like in the past uh, when, we, when C++ was introduced, all of a sudden every C programmer was an object-oriented programmer. Because it had the plus plus in the name and you could have done classes you could have if you knew what classes, they were. Yes. Yeah, this is just the same. You should take just a piece of Java code, uh, drop it into, into this machine and you get, you get nice pictures. So you have a model. So you're doing modeling. Uh, and you know, looking a little bit back, some, we we had this this flowchart uh, diagram machines taking some Cobol code or something like that, drawing flowchart exactly the same. That is, for all those people that don't like use don't like to use models, 
they will use these tools. So it's about reverse engineering what's already there. No, it's not a reverse engineering. Okay, it's, it's, it's a visualization of code structures. Yeah, but okay. it's, it's just just only to have something to, to pin it at a. Yeah, you have something to pin it uh, to, to, to pin it at a board. That's okay. the idea behind it. You can say, well, we're doing modeling. Which, by the way, goes to show that in some cases, graphics help. Yeah, they, yeah. they help understanding structure. But I remember having worked with Sniff Plus J or Sniff Plus, yeah. when was that? Like probably 10, 12 years ago or so. And it was great for visualizing inheritance hierarchies yeah, and absolutely. call graphs and everything. It, we never called it a modeling tool, but it was just helpful. I think that's the way uh, the mentioned tool provider sees <laughs> their development. I didn't mention any tool provider, by the way. <laughs> I didn't say together. Me and too. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So then, thanks everybody, and um, yeah, have fun tonight. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for listening to Software Engineering Radio. If you want to get more information about Software Engineering Radio or if you want to give us feedback, please go to our website at se-radio.net. You can also contact the team at team at se-radio.net, although we prefer entries in our comments system on the website so other people can see what you think. Software Engineering Radio wants to thank Henning Pauli for the intro and outro music, as well as Lipson for providing the bandwidth. This episode of SE Radio, as well as all other episodes, is licensed under Creative Commons license. See the Software Engineering Radio website for details. <laughs>